Right, so we look to 1 Corinthians 9, 16 to 27, and given that we have read it, I'll launch right into it, but this morning we are looking at freedom's reward. Freedom's reward, uh, specifically verses 16 to 27, are the context uh, for our sermon this morning. So we look at how the apostle himself begins to spell out the Christian's freedom and the rewards that the Christian gains uh, from his freedom. Specifically, Paul relates these things to himself because to the apostle, as we look at this, no one could boast in themselves related to doing the will of God because it was God who called them into his service. So no one could boast in themselves uh, because it was God who called them into his service. So he starts there. If you look at verse 16, he says, for if I preach the gospel up against uh, the fact that he was writing the things he was writing and preaching the gospel so that it was not a hindrance to people for him to consider taking the divine right of earning his living from the gospel. Uh, but he didn't also want the people to think that it was some kind of wager, a transaction uh, between him and themselves. So he said, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me or cursed is me if I do not preach the gospel. So Paul very much places this compulsion in a positive sense, that he was one who was constrained to the work, that he was one who could do nothing else in terms of lifting his mouth to testify and lifting his eyes to the Lord in testimony and lifting his heart before God to speak of the good news. And so Paul saw himself constrained to it. This was not a negative constraint where he believed that this was somehow exasperating to his soul or exasperating to himself, but he was constrained to it because God had called him to it. And he recognized that outside of that, he was cursed. He was cursed if he was a man who, one, knew he should proclaim it, and cursed if he was a man who did not proclaim it uh, as he ought to have done so, or sought some advantage by manipulating the people in his proclamation. He saw himself under a curse. He was compulsed to do this. There was a heavy compulsion on him. And then so he deals with then the expectation of his own reward in light of eternity. And I would say that the expectation of reward, even as we look at this from Paul's perspective, it's in direct proportion to one's perseverance and endurance in running the race with skill, patience, discipline and selflessness. I'll say that again. The expectation of reward is in direct proportion. It's directly related to One's perseverance, endurance in running the race with skill, patience, discipline, and selflessness. There's a commitment that goes with the expectation one has in, the, in light of eternity. And I believe that so many will, uh, will walk away from that eternal expectation because they don't have the perseverance or endurance to do it God's way. And so what Paul wants is he wants this done the way that God has commanded it. And so within our text... We have already examined how Paul argued against those who would suppose that his own motive for ministry was simply for financial gain. So I believe that that is why he is raising up uh, the, uh, the answer to those arguments. You see that in other portions of this particular letter where most of the letter uh, to Corinthians is a corrective. It's, he's putting forward things that need to be corrected in the minds and hearts 
of the Corinthians or outsiders who have influenced them and influenced the church there. And so he's trying to correct their thinking. Yet he was also clear that the Lord had directed those who preached the gospel to make their living from the gospel. However, Paul abstained from using this divine right altogether so as not to cause a hindrance to the gospel. So you see all these things working throughout our text and our context. So then one's own greed, one's own self-ambition, desire for self-preservation in the face of the gospel are obstacles set up against the gospel, even from those who proclaim it. I'll say it again. One's own greed, self-ambition and desire for self-preservation in the face of the gospel are obstacles set up against the gospel. Those things hinder the gospel's progress and hinder people from being brought near to the gospel. And when I say brought near to it, I don't simply mean the hearing of it. I mean doing the imperatives that come from it. So doing that which is commanded from it and experiencing the joy that emanates from the good news and from the one who gave us the good news. So Paul was constrained to the gospel in every aspect that I just mentioned. So many say that today and they say they're constrained to the gospel. They say, I'm confined to it. I'm compulsed to teach it. I'm constrained to preach and I stand here no other and all these other phrases that they utter. But what they really mean is that they're constrained to the man-made benefits they have attached to the gospel. So they're constrained to the benefits that they themselves have attached to the gospel. Whether they are inflating their own status among the people or do so at the expense of the people. They're constrained to that. But what Paul is saying is, if you take all those things away, I'm constrained to the gospel. So I want to be nearest to God and nearest to Christ. And wherever that leads, I want to go where he is. So the heart of the apostle was not to add anything to the gospel and then talk about how constrained he was to it. Because you see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were constrained to their form of Judaism. But because they had made it lucrative and uh, very much a status symbol among the people. So they were constrained to it. But they weren't constrained to the truth. So what we want to be careful of and mindful of is that the heart of the the heart of the apostle is uh, certainly one that teaches us we have to be constrained to the very thing that God has commanded. That's what we're constrained to. So verse 16, he says as much. He says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. As I said, Paul was under compulsion to preach the gospel. This does not mean that he was conflicted as to whether or not he should preach it. Rather, in the positive sense, he was compelled by a sense of duty to it. That's what the idea of the word is. He's compelled by a sense of duty to it and for duty's eternal reward of glory for faithfully proclaiming it. So he was constrained and compelled by a sense of duty. And he also had before him duty's eternal reward. So I do what the Lord has commanded and there is an eternal reward for me as I lay hold of this proclamation and as I proclaim it faithfully. And you'll see that as we make our way all the way through the text, because by the end of the text, he gives you the idea that he's running a race that is an eternal one. And he's trying to finish and be with the one who called him into the service. 
So you have literally Paul is here before him is is standing only two realities. There's only two realities that are standing before Paul. Knowing he ought to do it, the it being preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, the good news, and failing to do it, and failing to do it. Therefore, being outside of the gospel itself, if he fails to do it, if he fails to preach it, let alone follow what it commands. But he also believed himself to be cursed to eternal torment if he did not do it. And the only other reality outside of that was he had to do it faithfully and cheerfully before the Lord. So it was either don't do it and be cursed or do it cheerfully and faithfully. So when he says he's under compulsion, he's leaning into the faithful, uh, faithful proclamation and cheerful proclamation of it, knowing that what he aimed to do was usher people into the presence of the Lord. That's how he viewed his ministry. He didn't view it for himself because there's a hopelessness when one erects a ministry and tries to accomplish things in their own name. There's a hopelessness. There's a discouragement there. Uh, there will be quitting involved. But what Paul wanted to do is he wanted to usher people into the presence of the Lord. He stood before them and their eternity. And so he viewed himself that way. But first, what Paul saw is not simply temporal obligation. It wasn't simply temporal obligation, meaning what he had to do right now in the course of time in which he found himself And there wasn't this attitude like I might as well preach because there's nothing else to do. That wasn't what Paul was looking at when he approached these things. Rather, he viewed his own testimony of the Lord from the Lord's eternal perspective. He viewed his own witness from the Lord's perspective. Now, that brings great encouragement to the soul, or I hope it does, that he viewed his reasonable service of offering a witness about the Lord or testifying about the Lord or even living for the Lord. He viewed it from the Lord's eternal perspective. He didn't view it from something in and of himself that would establish uh, some following for himself among the people. The Corinthians were already guilty of that. But I'll tell you this. What he says is, If you look at verse 17, for if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. I have an eternal reward. If I don't charge a wage for this, I have an eternal reward that awaits for me. That's far greater than that. That takes great faith. But if against my will, if this is something I really didn't want to do, but I did it anyway, first of all, that's not the right way to do it. But if I did do it that way, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. Even if I don't want to do it, I am still commanded and compelled to do it because it has been entrusted to me to preach and proclaim the gospel. So I say, even if he could not view it the way that I'm saying, with cheerfulness and joyfulness and faithfulness, if he could not view it that way, he was still constrained to it because he was a steward of the gospel. It had been entrusted to him. It had been placed in his hand, so to speak, and he was to give it to others. He was to give it to others with great care. He was to ensure its delivery to those whom the Lord had placed under its hearing. 
And so Paul was constrained to that very act and that very task. But Paul also realized that his reward was not temporary and his reward was not merely temporal. It was both spiritual and eternal. That was his reward. And he wanted the Corinthians to understand that. It was far greater had he chosen. It was far greater than had he chosen, like so many try to do today, to keep elements of the gospel intact So his reward's greater than what I'm about to say to keep elements of the gospel intact. However, extract some financial benefit from being affiliated with it. Paul saw beyond that. He saw beyond that. And to them, then, this is the reward. It's amazing what he says the reward actually is. The temporal reward of the gospel. The reward is. The reward is what he says. In verse 18. Because he speaks of himself. He said, what then is my reward? Well, look at what he says, that when I preach the gospel, this is his reward. I may offer the gospel without charge. He says, that's the that's my reward. That brought him great joy so as to not so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. That was his reward. He saw that not as a burden. He saw it as a reward. So this was his reward. But today, so many view the financial benefit that they have extracted from it as their reward. So it is why they are so easily it is why people listen to this. It's why people today are so easily influenced by whether there are the numbers surrounding the message or whether there's financial gain or swelling crowds that come with the message. Because to them, the reward is the benefit. To Paul, the reward is I can give it to you with the benefit of you receiving it without charging you for it. That you don't owe me anything except the love and the good works that are committed to those who are his elect. But you don't owe me anything for my proclamation from it. Paul saw that as a reward. Even though it was his right to do so. You have to really wrestle with the idea of that with the tension involved in that because for Paul he wrestled with it and then what came out of that was there was no tension Paul didn't see it this way he saw the proclamation and the content of the message and the commands that come from the message as themselves eternally rewarding and therefore he could proclaim it in faithfulness whether he received anything from it or not He said in verse 18, and I know if anybody's listening to what I'm saying here, they'll probably turn it off after this. But he said in verse 18, his reward was to preach it for free. That's what he said. His reward is to preach the gospel for free. That's his reward. He says, the Lord has entrusted that to me. That is one of the elements of his reward. Not many would think this way today, but our text forces us to think this way, let alone not many would say this today. So many are charging and paying so much just for a half mangled version of what they're calling the gospel to be preached among them. They're paying for that. They're paying for people to give them things that aren't even close to the good news. And they're paying handsomely 
And Paul said, I'm going to give you the real version of it for free. I'm going to undercut their price. I'm going to give it to you for free. I'm going to preach the truth of God's word because I'm constrained to it. I'm going to give you the pure, unadulterated truth for nothing. You don't owe me anything for it. Think about that. How many are paying for a man-made, synthetic, emotional, so-called gospel that's no gospel at all? And so many are employed by that. But Paul not only saw through it, he called the Corinthians away from it. He wanted to offer the gospel without charge. Well, how am I going to live? How can I do that? You know, you know what Paul's response was? Because I'm free. Because I'm a free man. So if I'm a free man, I can give you something for free. Now, you see other places. Paul never said, well, there won't be times where you have to care for me, where you have to love me, where you have to honor uh, Christ in me and Christ in you. And we have to meet one another's needs. He's not he's not invoking something against that. But what he is saying is that this gospel, you owe me nothing for it. I'm not charging you for the gospel because I'm a free man. And therefore, if you want others to be free, you're giving them that which is free. You're not charging them a premium for something. Why should he constrain them to a cost for that which is freely given and freely received? You know where I'm getting that from? If you were to look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 8, when Jesus sends out his disciples to perform miracles and to preach and to proclaim and to do the signs that would point to his ministry among the Jews at that time. In Matthew 10, verses 5 to 8, Jesus says it very plainly. Freely you have received, freely you give. I gave it to you for free. Why are you charging everybody else for it? So perhaps you have to ask yourself this question. That many are probably charging something for it because they didn't receive the authentic version of it. What they received is something that they're paying for that's not true, and therefore they have to charge you for it. But Paul said, I don't have to charge you for something that I have received for free because it's pure. It's unadulterated. There's nothing. There's no additives, no preservatives in it. And so I'm going to give it to you for free because it has been committed and entrusted to me for free. And if we're all constrained to it in its purest form, then there can be no manipulation. The freedom, however, was not enforceably ensuring he earned a living from the gospel. That was not the freedom in the gospel to forcibly ensuring he earned a living from the gospel, because everything you see today is forcibly done. Nothing is in a way where people are actually sitting down. And discussing these things. It's all force. It's all by force. But in spite of the command from the Lord, not to spite the Lord, but in spite of the command, the command is there. Paul says the command is something we can certainly invoke. The command, in spite of the command that he was entitled to make a living from it, he refrained from doing so. You see that the Lord really used Paul's ministry in this area. You see that. Paul did not see this as a limitation in the gospel. But rather his goal, the only numbers game he was playing was, how can I win as many as possible to the gospel? 
and still keep the gospel free of charge. This wasn't a limitation. Rather, he wanted to win as many as possible. And you know what the cost was for him? This was the cost, enduring all things for them. That was the cost. That sounds so much like the Lord. He's not the Lord, but he has the heart of Christ. He wants to endure all things for them. That's the cost. But listen, it was also the reward. The cost and reward are the same. Look at verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. Don't lose that purpose statement at the end of verse 19, because so many become slaves to men and think they're doing what Paul said. And they're not doing what Paul said because they've lost the purpose. He says the purpose is to win them to Christ. The purpose is to win them to Christ. And so we have to work out what that looks like. Paul, as a free man, just as he wanted the Corinthians to be free, he still viewed himself as a slave to all. Now, listen, he was not a slave to all, as you'll see in our context, in the sense that he was bound to their sins or that he was bound to their consciences or expectations or that they were lords over him. But rather to gain a hearing among them, he would relieve himself of anything that would cause an offense outside of the gospel. So anything that would cause an offense outside of the gospel, he relieved himself of those things. Your sentiments, your idiosyncrasies, things that you might be thinking that are uh, that that are priorities, those things that really have no bearing in terms of holiness Versus wickedness, but those things that you just won't let me get in there and deal with, I'm going to bypass those things. We're going to walk through those things so I can reach the core of your soul with the gospel. Because listen, and this is why, because the gospel was sure to bring the offense. The gospel was going to bring the offense, not Paul. It was sure to bring the offense that was necessary for them to be saved and sanctified. That's what he wanted. He wanted the gospel to have its way. And so therefore, Paul did not want to join himself to that which was against the gospel. But he also wanted for people to see that he was for them and for them receiving the gospel. And this was a a uh, a certain authenticity and a genuineness that I truly believe that Paul had. I believe he wasn't just doing this just to just to appear to do so. I believe he really was about the work of being with and among the people in order to win them to Christ. But keep in mind something that in Paul's statement, and you'll see it as we move forward, his goal was not simply to conform to them to blend in with them. That was not his goal because he couldn't win them. And win them all if he blended in with them. It's not his goal. And I'll explain why that's not the case. But rather it was to conform to whatever would cause him to win them to him. So then what he avoided was what we have seen so far in our context. Specifically related 
to the earlier chapters we have studied. For in them, Paul made no, uh, he made no provision for sin and the flesh. He made no provision for sin in the flesh. But he also did not burden them or himself with commands the Lord had not given. And so that's the first way that he sees himself as a slave to all. That he did not make any provision for sin in the flesh. He didn't sin with unbelievers and say, I'm a friend of sinners. But he also did not burden them with the commands of the Lord and say, here's what the Lord has commanded. And the Lord had not commanded those things. And there were also things that would not put him in a place of disobedience against the Lord that the Lord had commanded. And for a time he would forgo in order to reach the essence of where he was trying to arrive. Well, what am I talking about? I'm talking about even his right to take pay for the gospel. He says, no, I'm not going to do that because I want the gospel to be the main thing among you. But that didn't mean that he was disobeying the Lord. It meant that he was not going to invoke a right that was certainly his. You see that Paul moves about people in this way. But he also would not take for himself, as I've said, the pleasure in commandments. Listen to this. He would not take for himself the pleasure in commandments. You see this with food and marriage with him. If the people were not ready. Or if they were not strong enough to handle Paul taking these things for himself, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't promote it. He wouldn't act like it needed to be done across the board. He would forgo certain things. He would forgo eating meat if it meant that the one with the weaker conscience would be offended forever. So then the slavery he mentions is to become as they are. It's to become as they are. But listen. Not in their nature, not in their nature. He didn't want to become an unbeliever to win them to belief. It was not in their nature, but it was by their function. It was by their function so that he could win them. By function wrapped in that are cultural sentiments, things that people just do, customs that people just practice. And I'm not conflating custom and culture all the time. With religious ideology. But I'm saying there are people, there are things that people do. You show up to deal with people and to talk to people and you show up in people's homes and there's just things that they do. And things that you conform yourself to that are a mode and operation as a part of being in their company. But he did it so he could win them. He did it so that he could win them. So now you have to think about the depth and the breadth of what he was actually doing. There was nothing that he did was that was against the purpose of him winning them. Verse 20 to the Jews, I became a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, look at what he says. It's very careful what he says, though not being myself under the law. I'm not under the law, but I go to where people are under the law. And I conduct myself with the laws and commandments that they have, as long as it doesn't put me against what Christ has. But he says, so that I might win those under the law. I want to get them out from under it. So I have to go to where they are to get them from under it. And then he says to the lawless, the Gentiles, as without law, as without law. So I abandon my Jewish custom and my Jewish way of thinking when I'm among the Gentiles 
And I do freely that which is not wicked or evil, but I can live according to the laws of their land and of their practice and of the individual practice. Though not being without the law of God, I don't conduct myself as a lawless man. Not being without the law of God, but look, I'm under the law of Christ. You see what we're talking about? Freedom. 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 Not perspective. Not how people feel about your outward appearance or how you conduct yourself, but free, true freedom in Christ. This is how I live and I've been born again. And he says, I live under the law of Christ so that I might win those who are without the law. Lawless, not simply without the law of Moses, but lawless. He's not just speaking to Jews or Jews for a time. He's speaking of Gentiles who are typically lawless. And that goes back to what he said in Romans to the Jew. I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. I have taken upon myself, in essence, your customs. But for the purpose of winning. So this isn't secretive. You know why I'm doing it. You know why I'm doing it. But it's why Paul was also attacked for doing what he did. That's why today apostate Judaism would call him a false teacher. They would call him a false teacher because he practiced the very thing he said. He said, I'm not going to bind myself to those things that you're using as a means of salvation. But I am going to keep up the custom that is a virtuous custom where it applies. To those under the law as under the law, says it very carefully, though not being myself under the law. I'm not under the law. I'm under the law of Christ. I'm not under Mosaic law. He didn't necessarily view himself as practicing the law of Moses against the new covenant, but rather to win as many as he could under the law. He would go to where they were to win them. That's essentially what's in view. He would go to where they were to win them. Paul did not become an apostate to win the apostates. Because then, what is the point of Hebrews? He did not become an apostate to win the apostate. Instead, he took for himself whatever custom or practice that did not conflict with the gospel itself. There are customs and practices that do. And you see at times Paul is persecuted because he says, I'm not doing that. But there's also times where he says, yeah, that's no problem. In order to go to them and win them, he did not stay in his safe bubble and wait for people to become followers of Christ. He didn't wait for people to become followers of Christ. But nor did he live like a pagan in order to win the pagans. In fact, the latter, he was trying to correct in Corinth because they were already doing that. They thought that that was the way to win people, that you just live like the pagans live. And somehow the pagans will be attracted to your manner of life. For in their practice, it really seems that the Corinthians held that latter approach. It really seems, though. Paul will speak to it later when they begin to desecrate more than what they have already. But what Paul says here, he does not say against the picture of true sanctification further down in our text in verses 23 to 25. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. So that I may become a fellow partaker of it. So nothing Paul did in what we have uncovered 
disqualified him from that. Do you not do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize run in such a way that you may win? Don't do anything that will cause you to lose. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Paul is telling you how he navigated this. Exercises self-control in all things. He was a very much controlled, a self-controlled man when he went into various places to win people. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. I believe the essence of what Paul is saying is that he was among the people. He was among the people. For in verse 22, it says, to the weak I became weak. That I might win the weak. So in order to win the weak, you have to be stronger than they are. But at times you may appear to be as weak as they are. Be wise as a serpent, innocent as a dove, our Lord said. I have become all things to all men. I have become all things to all men. So that I may by all means save some. Now, this does not mean... In any place, especially of what we have looked at together so far, this does not mean that Paul would forgo convictions, that Paul would forgo convictions in order to establish convictions in others. Because Lord help us, and I really mean that, there are so many who conduct themselves that way. They forgo their convictions in order to help others have convictions. And you would see how silly and dangerous that is. Nor would it mean that he would exercise pragmatism, an attitude of, well, whatever works. And or partiality for the sake of the gospel. Partiality for the sake of the gospel. And then exercise a certain pragmatism that goes with it. And then somehow say, well, I'm becoming all things to all men. No, you have become a weasel. You've become someone who is spineless, cowardly. That's not becoming all things to all men. Paul was self-controlled. He was holy. He was righteous. He was one who let people know this is what he was doing. I'm here before you for my purpose. I know you have your purposes, but I'm here to win you. And Paul was very upfront about that. Because if he wasn't, If Paul was a pragmatic man and a man who exercised partiality for, you know, quote unquote, the sake of the gospel, then think about how hypocritical his rebuke to Peter in Galatia would have been or is. When he told Peter to be careful of that same thing. But instead, you know what he's you know what he's referring to as we really just strip this down to the basics He walked with them in what they were walking through to get them out of it. He walked with them in what they were walking through to get them out of it and to liberate them. He wanted to win them to the gospel. We have read that in verse 23 so that he could be a partaker with them in the eternal benefits of the gospel, the true gospel. But in this, even in what Paul is saying he had done, that is becoming all things to all men. Some of it you see by the perception of men 
For they labeled Paul as, uh, as being joined to the sins that had enslaved others. So some of this Paul had to explain because his opponents saw him as being joined to the sins of others. Running with a certain crowd and thus being enslaved to the sins of that crowd. So Paul had to defend this because this was certainly not the case. In fact, to think so is false witness. Because things aren't always as they appear. And you know why? We walk by faith, not by sight. It seems familiar to us that Paul would be treated this way. Because remember what Jesus was mockingly called? The friend of sinners. As though he was sinning with them. But no, Jesus was dining with them. Because he had been invited to dine with them and he wanted to win them to himself and had just called one of them out of their midst. And he had come for them to win them. He didn't just come to them or come for them. He came to them to win them. So it would be false witness to say so. This was not the case in Christ. He was not guilty of sinning with anyone. He who knew no, uh, who knew no sin and had no sin. But this was not the case in Christ, nor was it true in Paul, who was a sinner that was redeemed in Christ. It was not true that becoming all things to all men meant he was a sinner with them. Rather, Paul's aim and intention was clear from the outset. He wasn't trying to figure it out along the way. He wasn't using it as a get out of sin card. Rather, Paul's aim and intention, it was clear, and it was the same as Christ's intentions. That's what he was trying to teach the church in Corinth. It was to be among them so as to win them. Because what Paul could have done, even to the people in Corinth, is they were sinning in the ways that they were. He could have just abandoned them. But this was an act of self-discipline. So many see self-discipline as an act attached to Christian consensus. Meaning as long as I'm around everything that appears to be distinctly Christian, appears, I'm therefore doing God's will. But no, sometimes it is to go and get people who are sinning and snatch them out of their sins as best we can, while also not being tainted with their sins. That's the self-discipline. Verse 24, he says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But only one receives the prize. Now, when you look at this at first glance, it's seeming that Paul is reflecting on what folks have said and called the exclusivity of the gospel. I mean, the gospel is a very exclusive thing, a narrow way. That few indeed enter into eternal joy in God and Christ. But I believe that even here he's casting down arguments. And one of the arguments I truly believe he's casting down is that activity, the argument that activity is just good enough. Because that's what the Corinthians were certainly thinking. And I know they were thinking that because that's what they were doing. That to them, religious activity was good enough. And I do believe that he's dealing with the fact that the gospel is certainly exclusive. But he's also dealing with the fact that you can make it appear as though you're Dealing with that exclusivity, and yet you're permitting sin to enter in through religious activity. 
Because look at what he says. All run the race. And I believe he's speaking directly to the Corinthians, but it also applies to our time. Because, listen, all the Corinthians were running the race. They all were running the race. But he says there must be a way, a manner in which the race is run. It's not good enough to just run the race. It must be run a certain way. It does no good to simply run or everyone run in the same direction. There must be intention. Careful intention. You must know why you're running and there must be a goal that you're trying to achieve in the run. Run in such a way so as to win the prize. That's how you run. So Paul is teaching them, if you really boil that down, Paul is teaching them to be excellent in their walk. To be excellent in their walk. To excel in their walk. Not simply to blend into the practices that had limited their own growth. Because that's what they all were already doing. They all were saying, yeah, we, we believe in Christ. Yeah, in fact, we have a Christ faction. We believe in the men who represent Christ. In fact, we have factions that represent that. Yeah, we believe in fellowship. We're all gathering together, desecrating the Lord's table, allowing immorality to flourish. But we all gather together to commemorate the Lord, so they think. But Paul's saying it's not good enough to run that way. Run this particular way with a particular goal in mind. Paul doesn't say, well, run in such a way that we can say, well, the church isn't perfect. No, run in such a way that you say the church needs to be perfected. We're trying to win. We're trying to lay hold of eternity. So we don't have time to let anything in that won't accomplish that goal. That won't have us here. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Paul then called the Corinthians to what they failed to demonstrate at times. I believe it's why he places it here in what we've read in verse 25. Self-control. Run with self-control. Listen, there are competitors who exercise a high degree of self-control for rewards that perish. And I admire the athletic ability to really zone in on a goal that you want to accomplish and try to achieve that goal. I admire that. I admire that kind of discipline. However, that is a reward that perishes. All the acclaim that goes with it. All the winning that goes with it. I'm not saying it's insignificant. I'm saying it's temporal. How then should the Christian compared to this excel in exercising a high degree of self-control for that which is imperishable? So you see... That so many, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you, even as we are ending our time here, I'll tell you what's happening before you in the modern church. Because I think it's important for you to know that you have people who are admired for their physical discipline, their temporal discipline. They go to bed on time. They wake up early. They might read something, read exhaustively, read the Bible. And then they do all these things to position themselves in the most disciplined and meticulous way. And they stand in the pulpit and they preach error. You know why? They're running without a goal. They're running. They're training. They're fighting. But it's without purpose. Or it is some self-exalting purpose that turns into a self-defeating purpose. 
But what Paul is saying is that one has to have a purpose beyond themselves. That there must be an imperishable reward in view. A reward beyond one that is only temporal and perishable. He goes to what was familiar to the world before him. The discipline of the Greco-Roman games. And the athletes who trained to perform and entertain the masses. And when you think of that entire world, I'm not going to get too deep into it. But when you think of that entire world, essentially what Paul told them is he wrote that he trained in the same way that they did related to his body, his mind and his conduct. And furthermore, not only that, even how he lived in light of his own preaching, even how he lived in light of his own preaching, he preached and he was tested. He preached and he was confronted. He preached and he was convicted. He preached and he encouraged. But he lived in light of that. This was intentional. It was intentional. There wasn't we're trying to figure it out along the way. It was intentional because the commands had been given. The precedent had been set. And it was on the mind of the apostle. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box, I fight in such a way as not just beating the air, not just throwing punches. Every punch is meant to strategically accomplish something. Me running in a race, I'm aiming to win the race, but I have to run in a particular way to win the race. Different races have different requirements. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. Look at this. So that. So so many would say in verse 27. I'll tell you, most of today's preachers live the first part of 27. They don't live the second part. Look at this. It's why you say, how can they say what they're saying? But they don't live like that. They sound so good, but they don't live that way. It's verse 27. But I discipline my body and make it my slave. So many say that. But look at the second part. So that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So many lay hold and claim to 27A, but 27B, they have no use for that. They're already disqualified. They don't believe what they're saying. But Paul is saying you ought not to be that way. He had to discipline his body, not for what he was about to do only, but for what the result of what he's already done, the result he wanted to achieve. Things that had already been said that he didn't want to incriminate himself and make himself in a way defiled before the Lord. He had to discipline his body, the ongoing work of sanctification. It is the idea of beating one's body into shape, not in the literal sense of the monks and false religion who scourge the outer body and cannot feed the inner man to present uh, true holiness before the Lord. All they do is bear scars on themselves, uh, some good outward showing of the flesh that did nothing for the inner man. Paul's not talking about that. This is to figuratively put the body in such a scrutiny and beat it into shape. This is the imagery of God carrying his own through their walk with him and their role to play in his sanctification for them. Their role to play. But more so for Paul in light of his own teaching, because that's what he was focused on in light of his own teaching. For we live in a time where men are very, very eloquent 
in how they present Christ. Very eloquent. Those who hate him the most often can speak with the most flowery language. Flowery language. Very eloquent in how they present Christ. But in their lives and in their own discipline, if they really said how they lived, they'd be babbling. Their lives and their discipline, they're babbling. Because they do not believe what they are saying is evidenced by what they do. The speaking is just a show. But how they live indicates that they don't understand even what they are saying. Paul says, I don't want to run that way. I don't want to fight that way. So then Paul did not want to be himself disqualified by what he did against what he himself preached. That's a powerful thing. He did not want to be disqualified by what he did against what he himself preached. So now you see all the fighting that goes into this, the eternal, uh, the internal war that he speaks about earlier in Romans. This was then a call for self-discipline, even when among those, uh, even among those whom he was trying to win. You see that I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after after it's not just focusing on I have to be disciplined only until Sunday. I have to be disciplined in light of everything I'm teaching. After I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. And I believe he does it and he does it for them. Let's pray.